Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. On today's episode, we have David Flatt, who's wrapping up our Galatians series. He's going to be looking at the last bit of Galatians chapter 6. And David always does an awesome job. He puts all this stuff together, and so I'm sure it's going to be excellent. So without further ado, here's David Flatt. All right, good morning. morning. Uh, Appreciate everybody braving daylight savings time. And uh, I guess in the fall, you don't have to brave it. You get an extra hour of sleep. So hopefully everyone's rested, and hopefully whatever I'm trying to say will make some sense because I got extra hours of sleep. Um, So we're right at the end of Galatians. We've been walking word by word from Galatians 1, and we'll finish today, uh, Galatians 6, uh, 11 through 18. And so we're going to talk about boasting in the cross and what does that mean and Hopefully, um, we'll make some connections that are relevant. I know <clears throat> when I was studying for this, it made me think about some things and maybe some stuff I need to change in my own life about what I'm doing now, maybe even what I'm dreaming for the future. So we'll look and see if uh, you guys feel the same way. I thought we'd start by um, reviewing uh, what has happened the first five and a half chapters of Galatians. I'm going to ask for a lot of help reading this morning. I should have asked before we started. So um, if you got... You know, your phone or uh, Bible with you this morning if you can pull that out and I'll just throw some verses out. Most of them will be in Galatians and um, we'll maybe get some help reading as we go. So let's go back to chapter 1, <coughs> start of Galatians and the key um, gospel concept in um, chapter 1 is grace. So most of Paul's letters are kind of outlined this, the same way, right? The first half of the letter is really kind of thick theology. So he's teaching about Christian doctrine, theology, truth. The second half of the book is about application. So now that you know this truth, how do you live it? That's usually the second half of Paul's uh, letters. I think Galatians maybe breaks down even um, more directly than some of his other letters. The first three chapters are definitely kind of doctrinal teaching. The last three chapters are application. So let's look at Galatians 1.6. Somebody read that for me. Right, so the impetus for Paul's letter, right, is that the um, Galatian church is having a controversy. Some of the Jewish Christians are telling the Gentile Christians, in order to be part of the family of God, you have to be circumcised. Paul's upset about this, and so he writes a letter saying, you don't have to do anything to be in Christ. You're saved by grace, by grace. So the key gospel concept in chapter 1 is grace. Chapter 2, the key concept is faith. So can somebody read Galatians 2.16? Yeah. So Trey hit like the uh, the key verse there in chapter two is going to be verse sixteen. You're justified by faith and not by works of the law. So the way you might want to say this is God's pleasure in us is based on Christ's performance for us and in us. So God's pleasure in you is not based on your ability to do all these things. It's based on what Christ has already done. Right. That's a key concept. Chapter 1, key concept is grace. Chapter 2, key concept is faith. Chapter 3, the key doctrinal concept that Paul's trying to teach is Christ. So Galatians 3.14. Somebody could read that. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Yeah, so I love chapter 3. Really, to teach chapter 3, you've got to like teach a lot of the kind of Old Testament theology. So why is he talking about Abraham? What does that have to do with Christians and Jewish Christians and how all that ties together? But the point is that the blessing given to Abraham to be the people of God 
comes to the Gentiles and the Jews in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. So Christ fulfilled the promise of Abraham in order to redeem us with the blessings of his righteousness. So remember we talked about um, back in Exodus chapter 12, God promised Abraham three things. He said he'd make him a, give him a great land, give him a great people, a great nation would come through him, and that all peoples of the earth would be blessed through his seed. So how is that promise fulfilled? How is the promise that God made to this pagan man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, promised that the whole world will be blessed through his seed. How is that promise fulfilled? Well, Paul says it's fulfilled through Christ. right? So Christ is the descendant of Abraham that the whole world is blessed through. Okay, So the theology of Galatians is these three key concepts. Chapter 1 is grace. Chapter 2 is faith. Chapter 3 is Christ. So I want to point out a, a, a few things here that are kind of cool. Um, you, some of you guys may know this is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, right? So you had this huge kind of religious Western civilization changing religious deal that happened 500 years ago. Martin Luther uh, hammers his theses to the uh, door of the, of the Catholic, his local Catholic parish, and it you know sets the world on fire. Some of that, you know, we kind of argue exactly what does that mean, how's that played out. But I think some things from it are, are important to kind of note. One thing that somebody who's really kind of rooted and um, takes a lot of worth in um, the theology of, of Luther and the Reformation would say that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And I think that's right. I think ultimately that's how salvation occurs. We're saved by grace. There's nothing that you do or did to, to make yourself worthy for salvation. We're saved through faith. So we're saved not by what we did, but by, by through what Christ did, through faith, and then in Christ. We're saved through the blood of Christ, in Christ. So how does this kind of play out in 2017 and kind of how we look at sin in our own life and how do these truths make an impact? So I don't know that I've got all the answers, but I think that we avoid the sin of legalism in chapter 1. Right? So anyone who says that here's what you have to do in order for God to love you. Here's what you have to do in order to be uh, in the family of God. I think chapter 1 kind of refutes that kind of thinking. Salvation is by grace. You don't have to be circumcised in a first century, uh, in a first century Jewish church. You don't have to be circumcised. God loves you because not of what you've done, but because of what he's done. Okay? And then in chapter 2, we avoid the sin of hypocrisy. Right? And so I think these play off each other, right? You, we often find ourselves kind of swinging back and forth from one to the other. In fact, you see churches swinging back and forth from one to the other. You have a, really a, a legalistic theology that says, here's what you have to do in order for God to love you. Here's what you have to do in order to be a person of God. Then you have another kind of theology that says it doesn't matter at all what you do. You just live however you want and come as you are, and it doesn't matter if you're changed or transformed by the power of the Spirit. Right? And I think the first two chapters of Galatians really say, uh, no, those are, those are kind of two ways to fall off of gospel teaching. So it's not enough to say, just live however you want and grace will cover. You have to live through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and a faithful life involves behaviors that are consistent with faith. So all this kind of comes together. Galatians 1 and 3 come together this key concept that set the world on fire 500 years ago. And this is the doctrine of justification. Okay, so justification is like a 
maybe more syllables than are needed to express this idea, but I think it's important. So this is the idea, this is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous based on faith in Christ. And so I think all those words underlined um, really matter, right? So justification is by grace. It's a gift. And um, it's God declaring you righteous. So you're declared right before God based on faith. So how are you declared right before God? You're declared right before God because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? So um, maybe that's kind, that's kind of a meaty and a little too thick for all we're going to talk about because we kind of went through it really fast. But I think that's all relevant because Paul is not just saying, here's how to live your best life now. Here's 10 steps to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Right? Paul's always grounds his application for how to live. He grounds it in Christian theology. So we're talking about Galatians 6 this morning, but we really can't talk about Galatians 6 until we understand Paul's already laid this foundation, which we spent the past six or seven weeks going through to, to set up Galatians 6. So this is the heart of the gospel, this idea of justification. It's the earth-shattering truth that's so often missed in a lot of shallow modern Christianity. The gospel is not a self-help course, how to improve your marriage, how to be happy, how to be healthy, how to be wealthy, how to have your best life, although a lot of that flows out of spirit-filled living. The message of Galatians and the Christian message itself is about a glorious God who's made peace with His people. We have the righteousness of Christ. All right, so that's the first three chapters of Galatians. Now let's look at the last three chapters of Galatians, and we'll just do the same thing. We'll talk about gospel application, gospel concept, and what, what text that comes from. So chapter 4 is this concept of adoption. Can somebody read 4-7? Yeah, so we talked about this idea that we were slaves to sin, but because of the doctrine of justification, we're no longer slaves, we're a son. And so the, the context there is who received the inheritance in first century Judea, that the Jewish Roman culture was the firstborn son. And so what Paul is saying here is everybody, male, female, slave, free, we're all sons in Christ. So through Christ we all receive the inheritance. Even if because of our cultural distinctions or the sin that surrounds our culture makes us different and says that you're more worthy, you're less worthy, in Christ we are all sons. We all get the inheritance. Okay, so the, that's the key concept in chapter 4 is adoption. We're all adopted as sons. Chapter 5 is the idea of freedom. Can somebody read 5.1? Yeah, and then uh, Galatians five thirteen through fourteen. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, that's good stuff. So we're called not to be slaves to either sin or slaves to moral living, right? To feel like we have this burden, we've got to do these 10 steps. In Christ, we should feel free. So if you feel burdened by a yoke of the sin that you can't overcome, or you feel burdened by this yoke of this list of you know, Christian activities that you just can't do, I, I, I'm not reading my three chapters a day, I'm not having my prayer time, I'm not attending services three times a week, 
you know, that's not spirit-filled Christian living. Now, spirit-filled Christian is going to have moral behaviors. They're going to want to be in the Word. They're going to want to be in the family of God. But if you're feeling burdened, like, man, I've got to do this, you're not living in the freedom of Christ. That's what Paul's saying here is in Christ, we've got real freedom. So the first half of chapter 5 is about spirit-filled living. Can somebody read 516? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the, the, the desires of the flesh. All right, and then 525? Right, so when you're living as a Christian, you're no longer living under the, the flesh. The Greek word there is sark. It's like the, kind of the, um, the human, the earthly part of who we are. We're not living by that anymore. We're living by the Spirit. So we've got infused, powerful living that should transcend kind of what we would be living if we weren't Christians. And then finally, Kyle last week talked about the first half of chapter 6, this idea of Christian community. Can somebody read 610? All right, so as a faith family, we have a special connection with one another that is based on the Word. I hope uh, that the people in this room, actually I know some of the people in this room, we don't have as much in common. You're not as connected naturally from an earthly standpoint as you would be with maybe some other people that you see at the gym or work with or maybe have share some shared interests with. There are obviously some people here that have good camaraderie and are kind of naturally friends. But the point is, even if you don't have a natural connection with somebody that's in the family of believers, I hope that you feel a special connection with them because you're connected with something so much more powerful um, than just common interests or compatible personalities, right? You're eternally connected because of the gospel of Christ, right? And so what Paul's trying to say here is he's trying to say there's something special about the community of believers. And so we need to be living in harmony with one another. We need to be sacrificing for each other. We need to be looking out for each other's needs, not because it's the good thing to do, not because it's the easy thing to do, because sometimes it's not, but because we share what's most important, which is uh, faith in Christ. All right, so all that's background and review. First three chapters, Doctrine of Galatians. Last three chapters is uh, Practical Applications of the Galatians. And then we come to the very end of the, the text. So I'm just going to read the text uh, for this morning, which is Galatians 6, 11 through 18. And then we'll go through it kind of line by line. See what large letters I use as I write you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither the circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Okay, so that's the text in full. I kind of want to go line by line and, uh, and talk through it. So can somebody read verse 11? See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. So it was customary for Paul to dictate his letters. So here's a good... Uh, maybe Bible college word if you studied like letters of Paul or something in, a, in undergrad. But So Paul would always have an amanuensis, so a scribe. So it's the idea that Paul would talk and somebody was writing the letters for him. So Paul was dictating most of his letters. And at the end of the letter, um, Paul would often t 
take the pen and write the end of the letter himself. So some of this is uh, kind of reading between the lines and trying to figure out exactly what's going on here. But best I can tell, and I'm no expert, I'm just trying to read a couple of books and figure out what's going on in Galatians so we can talk about this morning. But two or three people that I read think that Paul picked up the pen and wanted to write the end of Galatians here, these last five verses, because it was so important to him. And it makes sense, right? Because he's going to hit on a lot of the themes here at the end of chapter 6 that kind of summarize what he's been dictating to his scribe the whole beginning of the letter. So Paul takes, takes the pen from the amanuensis' hands and says, I'm writing this last part. So here's what he writes. Can somebody read 12 and 13? Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want to be circumcised. They want you to be circumcised, but they may boast about your circumcision. So the legalists were trying to compel the Gentile Christians to be circumcised in order to impress others. Right? So this is the whole controversy. So we kind of talk about the history of this. In short, there was a church in Galatia was predominantly Jewish. Because of kind of some political controversies, the Jews were kicked out of the region, and so the church became mostly Gentile. Now some of those political controversies have abated. The Jewish Christians have come back. And the new Jewish Christian, the Jewish Christians who have come back, who used to be the leaders in the church, are seeing that the church is much less Jewish. It's more of a Gentile church now, and they're not mandating or even prescribing that all new Christians need to be circumcised. And so that's the controversy that Paul, a Jewish Christian himself, is trying to speak into. Do these new Christians need to be circumcised? And Paul, kind of summarizing the letter here, is saying that the Gentile Christians, I'm, I'm sorry, the Jewish Christians want the Gentile Christians to be circumcised for two reasons. First, he says, to avoid persecution. So look at verse 12. Verse 12, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So I don't know the whole context or history here, but I guess that the Jewish Christians are worried that if they are associating with people as the people of God who are not circumcised, that they're going to receive some sort of persecution from other Jewish leaders. Okay, I, th I think that's the best way we can kind of put all that together. Whether or not that is exactly what Paul's referring to or not, I think the point here is interesting, is that we follow a crucified Messiah, right? So I think a temptation we can fall into in 2017 America, where maybe the dominant culture is no longer Christian, but there's certainly a lot of Christians who are living comfortable lives, me among them, right? We don't really see suffering and persecution as a routine, normal event in our life, but we should not be surprised when following a suffering, persecuted Messiah when we run into troubles and suffering ourselves, right? And so Paul's point here that the Jewish Christians are doing something unbiblical, are changing gospel teaching in order to avoid persecution, I think ought to land kind of hard on us, especially as we kind of enter a more secular era in American living. Are you willing to change gospel teaching in order to avoid persecution yourself? You, are you willing to change what you believe because it's easier to believe something else? Because the people who you want to admire you believe something different? I think it's a hard question for me to answer, right? You think about how you act in the, a secular workplace when somebody asks you an uncomfortable question, or how do you love somebody that's different than you uh, for all different reasons. Those are tough questions. I'm not saying I've got all the answers, but I think the application is here that Paul's upset that a group of people are changing gospel teaching because they're trying to avoid persecution. Second point, he says in, in uh, verse 13 that they want to boast in your flesh. 
So they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. So um, obviously circumcision in the flesh, we kind of understand from like an anatomical perspective what's going on there. But of course circumcision is much more than, <clears throat> than anatomy. There's something spiritual going on here. The Judaizers were hoping to boast, presumably to their Jewish friends, about the flesh of the Gentiles in Galatia. This is a great point in the text to ask ourselves the obvious question, what is it that we boast in? Okay, so I want to go on like a brief psychological excursion here, and this, may, this might be a disaster, but uh, I was thinking about it this morning. I thought this would be a neat time to kind of talk about how we see ourselves, what it means to be a fulfilled person, what it means to be living life as a whole human, what does human flourishing mean. So let's start with really a, a secular view uh, and a secular model. So anybody know what we're going to do here? Yeah, look, he paid attention in psychology class. He went to Harding, that's why, so good education there. Yeah, so we're going to talk about hierarchy of needs here. So this, is, of course, is a model of reality, so it doesn't perfectly depict reality. I've got some problems with it we'll talk about in a second, but I think it's helpful to make a point. So um, I wouldn't have known this if I hadn't read about this week, so I'm not going to like have a pop quiz to fill in. But if anybody knows the blanks, just uh, shout them out here. So the first basic need, yeah, so like they could say physiologic So this is like physical needs. So the idea here, the, the idea of this model is that these are the, the increasing needs of a, of a fully human person. And you can't achieve a need above on the next rung of the ladder until you've achieved the, the need on the lower rung, right? So the point here is you don't care about any of this if you don't have food to eat, if you don't have a house to live in, if you don't have water to drink, none of this matters, right? Basic needs are physiologic. How, what do you need to stay alive, okay? Next level is, um, yeah, safety. So point here, the human need, everybody wants to feel safe. So you don't care about what's above this if you feel like you're going to be murdered tonight, right? If you feel like you're uh, in peril when you lay your head down, you're going to do everything you can to make choices and changes in your life so that you feel more safe. And you're not going to worry about what's above this until you have food to eat so you're not going to starve and until you feel safe so you and your family aren't going to be uh, you know, murdered or under threat. The next um, level is the idea of belonging. So this model would say that once you have your physical needs met, once you feel safe, then you're going to look to find love, to, be, to belong to a group of people, to feel loved and affirmed by somebody. The next level is esteem. So this means you want to be valued. Both you want to, you want to live in a way that you think well of yourself, kind of your internal relationship with yourself, internal dialogue, but you want other people to value you, right? And I think I mean, it kind of sounds weird in church to say this, but this is true, right? I, the, all the people in the room here, I want you guys to think well of me, right? For both good and bad reasons, right? Good reasons, because I, I want to be a good person that's worthy of being thought well of. Probably bad reasons, there's some egotism in there and some own kind of prideful self kind of wrapped up in all that. But at any rate, being a human, I have a need and a value of being esteemed. I both want to view myself well, and I want you guys to view me well. Does anybody know the, the top one, the famous one? Yeah, man, that's so good. Harding grad there. Yeah, so this idea is that the highest need is to become your full self, to be all you can be, um, to kind of become everything. So 
like a lot of models, especially a model that you would study in school or something, some, a smart person came up with this and thought about it. And so there's some truth here, right? I think as we're going through it, you maybe you don't like, oh, yeah, that's exactly everything. But I think all of us kind of recognize some truth in how our lives are organized and the things we care and think about and how this is set up. Now, I will say I don't think this is a biblical model, right? I think a lot of us live this way. But, but the top of a kind of a, a spirit-filled disciple, the, the, the pinnacle of of Christian living is not self-actualization. It's, it's death to self, right? It's, it's thinking um, not more of yourself, not really less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, right? It's being concerned with um, being a virtuous person for the sake of the rest of the world, right? And caring about the needs of others, not just for, for time, but for eternity. That is the, the ultimate Christian um, spirit-filled human journey is to, to die to yourself and to live in Christ. So for the Christian, do these things matter? Well, I think, I think yes. I think a, a Christians still have to eat. Christians, you, you know, you ought to try to be safe and keep your family safe. I think we all want to belong. We talk about building community. I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to do a better job of this, right? We want to be a place where people belong and feel comfortable. We want to value each other. I think it's important to live in a way that you can look yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, I was a, I'm a good man. You know, I'm worthy of, of fathering my children or, or whatever. But I think the point here is when you die to yourself, when you lose any of these things, it's not going to change your view of yourself, right? Because you're alive in Christ. You find your value and that you're created in the image of God. And you find your purpose in an eternal purpose, in an eternal reconciliation with God, who loves you not because of any of these things. So you think like the heroes of the faith, all of them, at one point or another, lost one or more of these things, right? So all the apostles except one died like ugly, right? Like crucified upside down died, got head cut off, died. Like they were not, their lives were not safe, right? Christians have been starved to death, martyrs for Jesus, right? Uh, George Whitfield, maybe the best preacher ever, like I've obviously never heard him preach, but people like write and say this guy's the greatest, you know, articulator of the gospel. He was depressed. He, was, he suffered with depression his whole life and then he died, right? He didn't have this value of esteem, but did he value himself? Did he have purpose and value in his life? Yes, because his value wasn't in climbing this ladder, but it was in being infused with the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ. So all that to say, I want to have a brief kind of discussion question, and I want maybe you talk to the person next to you, and then we'll write some of these on the board. But what are some things, identifiers, or ideas that you see people trying to find their identity and worth in? So here's, here's kind of the thought experiment, experiment I'm trying to capture. When you're at work, <clears throat> when you're uh, hanging out in your neighborhood with your neighbors, when you're at the grocery store, when someone's talking to you and they're trying to kind of assert their bona fides, they're trying to show you that, that they have what it takes, that they're enough. What are some things that you see people leaning on to kind of say, hey, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm worthy of your relationship and your esteem. So let's talk about that for a couple minutes and then we'll write a couple on the board.
All right, I hate to interrupt the conversation, but since I'm kind of long-winded, uh, we want to try to see if we can't uh, cram all this in. So why don't you just uh, maybe throw out some things that were talked about that you thought kind of rang true to you? Career. Career, yeah, I think that's a big one. That's good. Yeah, so I've got a I've got a good, beautiful family. I'm you know, I'm a good dad. I'm 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 worthy. You should be friends with me. We said just being like like tolerant, being a, a very mm. tolerant person. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so we've talked about that. That's kind of the supreme value in our larger culture. Which I think is not all bad. We kind of talked about the nuance of what it means to be tolerant and how that can be good and it can be taken too far. But yeah, we want to affirm this is the value that you all hold the highest. And look, I've got it too. I'm tolerant. That's good. I didn't say anything about career. Maybe it's because I'm guilty of that, right? We, we all do that. Like I'm, I'm good enough because look what I, I do at my 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. Yeah, so <laughs> that's good. Yeah. You know, if you're if if you're looking at it from a legalistic perspective of the fact that there's something that we can do to achieve, you know, the pinnacle of, of a gospel good life. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at it outside of the blood of Christ, there's no good outcome. Because if you succeed then it comes back to you and if you fail it comes back oh, to you. Oh man, that's good. So Dude. Dad, we gotta get you to teach more, man. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Yeah, that was really good. All right, now probably no one else is going to talk after that. That's perfect. Um, okay, so let's go. Let's go to uh, Galatians six. So we're thinking about these things that we boast in, these things we value in. Who can read Galatians six um, one through fourteen for us? May I never boast except in the cross, of our, the cross, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. <coughs> May 20th of 2000, one of the largest youth rallies in American history happened right here in Memphis. So you have all these high school and college students out there at Shelby Farms, and it was like 15,000 people between the ages of 17 and 22. And the last night, sun's going down over uh, Patriot Lake there at Shelby Farms. This old minister, like 65 years old, gets up and gives, maybe it's not the speech everyone's looking forward to, um, but it's, it's been a speech that, uh, oh yeah, sorry dad. Um, <laughs> it's been a speech uh, that's really changed the world in a lot of ways, and I, I really mean that. It's, it's launched um, lives that were going in a different direction into something profound. So I want to quote um, for what this young minister said, um, I guess 17 years ago. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you have to know a few great things that matter and to be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach to the end of the earth and roll on for centuries into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks 
or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. Think about saying this next paragraph to a group of college students. But I know not all of you want your, your life to make a difference. There are many of you who don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. Or if you grow up, have a good job, a good wife or husband, a couple of good kids, a nice car, a long weekends, a few good friends, a fun retirement, a quick and easy death, and no hell. If you could have that, you'd be satisfied. That is a tragedy in the making. Three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Rudy was over 80, single all her life. She poured out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over the cliff, and they both were killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Christ. Two decades after almost all of their American counterparts had retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. When he was 59, she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida. They play softball and collect seashells. The American dream, come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work you give before you give an account to your creator be, I collected shells. See my shells, God? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I want to plead with you, don't buy it. The best way to make your life count is to stop spending it, things, is to stop spending it on things that are temporary, our pleasures and preferences, and start spending it for the things that are forever. God is forever. People are forever. And the cross forever ties God to his people. The cross is forever, and we boast in the cross. We boast in the cross for three reasons. We boast in the cross because it tells us the truth about ourselves. So we are pretty good liars, right? We lie to ourselves about who we really are and uh, what we're really doing. But the cross says something different. The cross says the second person that... The cross says that David is so infused with sin, his flesh is so irreparable by his own power, by my own power, that the second person of the Trinity became, or came in the form of a man and died on my behalf. So why would that have to happen? That would only have to happen because I'm infused with sin that makes me spiritually sick. That's what Isaiah says. Blind. That's what Revelation says. Ignorant of truth. That's what Ephesians says. That my heart is dark. Romans. I'm in a state of enslaved. Romans 6. Powerless. Romans 5. Captivity. Colossians 1. That's not the way we talk about sin. Right? We say somebody's intolerant. We say somebody's prejudiced. We say somebody um, is making, uh, somebody's greedy. We say somebody's a glutton. We say somebody's making bad decisions. But the Bible tells a different story about sin. Sin is so serious that the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe, came in the form of a man and died on the cross to redeem it. 
We are, able, we are unable to save ourselves. All of our effort and good works to earn approval with God are ultimately not enough. So, like a lot of uh, old sayings, I think there's a lot of truth, as the old hymn writer says, there's nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Right? So, a gospel view of salvation is not, I'm a good person, I do these, I do these good things, I take care of the poor, I come to church three times a week. The, a gospel view of salvation is, I've got nothing. I'm totally screwed up. My life is infused with sin, and I'm just clinging to the cross. This is why superficial religion is simply not enough. Religion, as most of the world thinks about it, is about making bad people good. We need more than that, and Jesus offers us more. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. So I wouldn't be teaching class if I didn't quote my boy David Platt, but here's what he says about superficial religion. He said, what we don't need, ladies and gentlemen, we don't need superficial religion. Superficial religion appeals to our self-esteem, our self-saturated egos. It was circumcision and rituals and rules in Galatians. Today, it's prayers to pray, cars to sign, churches to attend, morality to follow. You put them all together, since, since Genesis chapter 4, since Cain and Abel, man has been trying to use religion to cover over his sin. Man has been putting on all kinds of different shows that we create, and we say, you do these things, you perform this act before God, and everything will be okay. And that's the last thing we need, superficial religion. What we do need is supernatural regeneration, and that's what Christ offers a chance to be born again. We boast in the cross because it tells us the truth about who we are. We are sinners, incapable of saving ourselves. We are in need of a Savior. Second, we boast in the cross because it shows us the love of our Savior. Shows us the love of our Savior. We do not need to spend our lives pursuing the things of this world. Paul says he is dead to the world and the world is dead to him. Look, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Right? We, we've kind of glamorized the cross. Right? We wear it around our necks, got pictures of it uh, up in our home. I, I do that too. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I think we may miss the point. Paul's saying here, through which the world has received the electric chair to me and I have received the electric chair to the world. He's saying the world is dead to me, and I'm dead to the world. Why? Because he's been crucified with Christ. And so if we're not careful, we can spend our time, our talents, our dreams, and our money chasing and acquiring a pile of things that fulfill our pleasures and our preferences in this world. If we're not careful, we will one day stand in front of our Creator, and all that we work to accomplish and boast in our lives will burn up in the flames. Boasting in the cross keeps us from wasting our lives on the shallow, tragic dreams of our world. Boasting in the cross shows us that Christ is everything to us. One of my favorite people that ever lived, this is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Does anybody know who Diedrich Bonhoeffer is? Good, some, some people know. So this is a German Christian during the World War II era, really a faithful guy, committed to the Word, uh, as really the Christian church in Germany was kind of being co-opted by the rise of Nazism, and really some kind of disturbing ways that, that aren't historically comfortable to kind of go back and look at. Bonhoeffer recognized that what was going on in the German church was not what was in Galatians, right? Actually, Bonhoeffer realized it so strongly that he tried to assassinate Hitler, tried to kill Hitler before kind of the, the whole thing went crazy because he recognized how evil uh, uh, Hitler was. So for Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer obviously didn't succeed and for his efforts was sent to prison and then later mar martyred. But I think these words ring true when you talk about where your value is and what are you boasting in. The baptized Christian has ceased to belong to the world and is no longer its slave. He belongs to Christ alone. His relationship with the world is mediated through Christ. 
So I think this is a good point here. As Christians, is it okay for us to have a house? Is it okay for us to have a car? Is it okay for us to have clothes? Of course. Of course. Later in the New Testament, Paul says every good and perfect gift is from above, right? So, so it's not that God is wanting you to withhold from pleasures or good things in the world, but all of those things are mediated through Christ, and we value Christ so much more than any phone or computer or thing. And if the world sees us finding our pleasure and our worth in the same thing that the world is finding their pleasure and their worth in, then how are they going to recognize that there's anything different about us? Right? And so Bonhoeffer says here, not that Christians should not have possessions, but he said that the Christian belongs to Christ alone, and his relationship with the world is mediated through Christ. So the relationship you have with the material world, I think, Bonhoeffer's right, should be mediated and understood through your relationship with Christ. Because of the cross, our lives, your life and mine, are infused with meaning. How we live and who we live for matters so much because we are forever people. The meaning of your life will slip beyond your grave and spill over into eternity. So, and then this last point, talking about our life slipping beyond the grave and into eternity. So, boasting in the cross keeps you from wasting your life. All right, so Paul's written this masterpiece, right? Where like he's got two verses left, so he's he's fixing to land this plane, and uh, we'll see kind of how he tries to do that. Oh, okay. Can somebody read Galatians six fourteen? I'm sorry, no, not six fourteen, six fifteen. So I don't think I can explain this verse any better than, uh, than N.T. Wright, so I'm just going to read his quote, and uh, I, think, I think it's helpful. What matters is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither the marks in the flesh of the Jew nor the absence of such marks in the Gentile. What matters is that God has unleashed upon the world His own new creation, and through the gospel of Jesus invites us all to share equally in its blessings, its new life, its future promises. So through the new creation, God has invited us into the blessings of Christ, the new life in Christ, and the future promises of Christ. We are a new creation. So finally, the benediction. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. To the, to the Israel of God, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, brothers and sisters. Amen. Paul concludes this letter with this main theme of circumcision that he's been talking about by pointing out that he bears on his body, of course, he, Paul is a circumcised Jewish Christian, but he's also pointing out that he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. So I just want to read this text to you, 2 Corinthians 11, 24-25. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night... I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger and false brothers, and toil and hardships through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and an exposure. So Paul is saying the marks that matter to me, the marks that matter to God, are not necessarily being circumcised or uncircumcised, but the marks on my flesh are the marks of Christ. Is Paul saying we all should be physically tortured to have the marks of Christ on? No. Paul's saying, though, that the marks that matter are the ones that Christ has given us, not a physical outward manifestation of circumcision.
It's been said that the book of Galatians is grace-saturated and cross-centered. In six chapters, the word grace is used ten times. The cross is referred to eight times. And with the final strokes of his pen in his own hand, Paul brings these two beautiful truths together in a breathtakingly powerful way. We base our lives on and boast in the cross because through the cross, we find truths that are worth giving our lives to. Truths like grace, faith, Christ, adoption, freedom, spirit-filled living, genuine Christian community. These are things worth dying for, but maybe just importantly, these are things worth living for. So let's be a people that says to a world committed to telling us what to live for and what is important, that tells you what makes you valuable, that the world can keep the shallow success, smarts, sex, savings accounts, and seashells. We want the cross. Let's spend our time, talents, money, and very lives to make the name and love of our Savior who died on that cross known across our city, across our nation, across our nation, and into the nations. We will be people who boast in the cross. So thank you for joining us on this episode of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. Uh, it was really, really, really great. I'm completely uh, covered with tears. <laughs> really an emotional lesson. And... Uh, Man, it was just great. So if you're in the area, come join us, 10 a.m., Highland Church of Christ, the Bridge Builders Classroom. We'd love to have you there. And if you're just listening along, I think that's great, too. And I hope you're having an awesome week. We will start a new series next week on the attributes of God. This is in a book by Tozer, and uh, you can pick that up. And we're going to be doing two attributes each week. And so I look forward to that next week with you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon.